The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So when they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them. People ran there by land from all the towns and had arrived ahead of them. So as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it is already late. Send them away, so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for this passage in Mark 6. And we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here in recent weeks, you know that Steve is working through the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. And... Uh, I, I enjoy this study. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed what Steve's been bringing to us, the challenges he's been bringing to us, and just the, the process of working through a book of the Bible and, and getting a feel for the whole book, I think can be very helpful. So I, I want to try to move that series forward a little bit, um, but I suspect I'm going to get myself in trouble in the process. Uh, I, can't, I can't help for, but use this opportunity to, to share a few comments about related things. We are in the midst of a presidential primary season, are we not? Politics is in the air. And some of you, I know if I ask you, you know, what do you think about the current political scene? Some of you will say, well, Daniel, I just don't watch the news anymore. It's so discouraging, so I just don't, I don't pay attention. And I understand that. I, I, I can sympathize with that view. Uh, it does seem, unfortunately, that American politics is at, is at a place where uh, it's very uncivil, childish at times, and, and that the, the discussion isn't really getting us anywhere as a country. So I understand if you're wanting to turn off the news and not pay attention, Though I would challenge you, I'm not sure as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we really have the option of not caring. I do think that Jesus would call us to care about the world and about uh, our country and our community and, and to be aware of what's going on, if nothing else, so we know how to pray. Wouldn't you agree? 
So I understand if you're not paying attention to the the political season, but I think you're aware that it's going on. A question that I've wrestled with a lot is how should my, my Christian faith shape the way I approach politics, government? Does the Christian faith have anything to say? Well, the truth is, good and godly Christians disagree about a lot of political issues. Sincere believers of the Bible often come to different conclusions about the same political issues. And so I'm afraid sometimes we're tempted to just give up and say, well, obviously our Christian faith doesn't really have anything to say about politics. But I think that's a mistake. I think we're called to do the hard work of trying to think Christianly about the issues in our culture, whether they be political or otherwise. And so this morning, I just want to throw out two principles that maybe would help us a little bit as we think about the current political season. And, and then I'm going to try to get back to Mark 6, and, and hopefully Jesus is going to help me out a little bit. But two principles. You know, again, Christians bring their faith to bear on politics in different ways, But I think we can be agreed on two points, at least. First, as followers of Jesus, our ultimate allegiance is not to our country, but to the kingdom of God. That is a really significant principle. And for some of us, we, we wrestle with that. But I think we can agree that if we're a follower of Jesus then Jesus' kingdom is of higher priority than the country that we live in. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't be patriotic or love our country. I am very thankful and proud to be an American. I mean, the blessings that we've experienced, the freedom that we experience, are unparalleled in human history. Nobody's had the opportunities that we've had. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be thankful or we shouldn't be supportive of our country, but we do have another allegiance, an allegiance to the kingdom of God. And it does supersede, it it should supersede our allegiance even to America. And when there's conflict between the two, we have to be really careful to kind of distinguish those allegiances. And uh, I, I could get into examples of how that might work out. I don't I'm not sure I want to go down that rabbit trail, but let me give an example. Oh, it's dangerous, right? I don't know the answer to this question, but just think about this. Here's an example of how, as American Christians, we we have to try to think through these competing allegiances. Ever since 9-11, a big issue facing our country is national security. What kind of action are we justified in taking in protecting our citizens? A big question is the, uh, the question surrounding the use of torture. The use of torture to gain information from suspected terrorists. Now, as an American, I know what my answer is. Do whatever you have to do. But as a follower of Jesus, I, I have to stop and say, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not so sure there aren't certain commitments that supersede um, my concern for freedom and security. 
So I don't know, I'm not trying to tell you how you should think about this issue. I do think it's a challenge for Christians to support torture regardless. And if we do, I think we have to have a pretty impressive argument as to why. But there's an example of where two commitments kind of come into conflict. Commitment to America, American security, my own security. Commitment to the kingdom, which says there are principles that transcend and that those have to be given priority. So, again, you don't have to agree with me. Torture is something we can talk about another time. I'm using that as an illustration. Our ultimate allegiance is to be to the kingdom of God. We, we should be great citizens, the best citizens, but our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom. So every time we enter to this political discourse, we participate in it, let us remind ourselves of that. And I think it's helpful because it helps us as Christians to be maybe a little more objective to be able to speak truth to power, even if maybe that power is our own political party, whatever that is. As Christians, we should be able to criticize people on both sides because we have this outside perspective. Okay, moving on. Enough trouble there. Second point. We are to offer the world a radically different view of power. Okay, and this is where we miss, we miss our greatest opportunity. We are introducing into this conversation a radically different view of how power could and should be exercised. And what are we basing on that? What are we basing that on? Well, we're basing it on the example of Jesus. You know, the world does power uh, this way. It, it, it's power over. Right? It's power to control, to coerce. Um, that's how the world does power. And that's not entirely bad. Right? We, need, we need government. We need law enforcement. We need armies at times to protect us. So I'm not saying those things are bad. But that's how the world does power by definition. It's power over. But Jesus brings in a whole different perspective when he shows a different use of power, and that is power under, power to love and serve even those we disagree with, those who disagree with us. So, again, two principles, and we're going to go back to Mark 6 here, but two principles to help us think about political discussion. And one is our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And two, Part of what we're called to do as Christians is to, to show forth a different way of using power. And so if we completely adopt the methods of the world, if we completely adopt power over strategies, then we lose our distinct Christian message. And that's happened in church history. When the church has tried to use force to impose its view, impose itself, it's lost its distinct Christian message. Okay, to Mark 6. How am I going to get back there? Well, what kind of power are we going to trust? See, that's the challenge for us as Christians. At the end of the day, what kind of power do we really do we trust? And I think a lot of us, for our private individual lives, we say, yeah, we trust Jesus. Jesus' power. But when it comes to these larger questions of, of public life and culture, uh, we say, well, I don't see how Jesus can help us there. <laughs> Does Jesus have anything to say in that arena? 
And I want to suggest here in Mark 6, we have a very interesting passage that at least speaks to these questions a little bit. Because what I would suggest we have here is a revolution of sorts. Mark 6, feeding of the 5,000, a revolution. Now you're saying, come on, Daniel, what are you talking about? This is, this is Jesus having a picnic. I mean, this is Sunday School 101. But I think if we, we look at the context and what's going on, we're going to see, well, there's quite a bit going on here. In fact, this is a revolutionary act that Jesus is engaging in, and it has something to say about the use of power. So let me, let me try to prove my point. First, if you were here last week, and I wasn't here, I apologize. Last week, what was the passage about last week? Who's the main character? Herod, King Herod, beheads John the Baptist. Interesting. Now, if you've learned something from going through Mark, I hope you've learned that every passage has to kind of be understood in light of the passages that come before and after it in the context. So why would Mark tell us about King Herod and then go into Jesus feeding the 5,000? Is there a connection? Well, maybe not on the surface, but I, I actually think there is a connection. In both stories, we have a king hosting a banquet. Okay? Mark uses the, the title king for Herod a lot, even though Herod really wasn't a king. He was kind of a wannabe king. So it's almost like Mark is, is mocking him a little bit. But he uses the title of king. But the title of king is also applied to Jesus. At the cross, what's the sign that's placed over him? Basically, this is the one who is claiming to be king of the Jews. So in Mark, we have two characters, Herod and Jesus. Both are given the title king, and both offer a banquet. Now, you see that with Herod. He has this dinner party, and it gets a little rowdy. He makes some poor decisions, and it costs John the Baptist his head. What may, be not, what may not be quite as obvious is in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, in verse 39, uh, where it says, Then Jesus directed to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. It's really strange, but there's two Greek words here. It, it, it literally says, Jesus uh, directed the people, symposium, symposia, 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 which is not used in the New Testament very much. But the word symposium in the Greco-Roman world was the word used for a, a dinner party. Honestly, a drinking party. A dinner party. So here Herod's had his dinner party. Now Jesus is having his dinner party. But the differences could not be greater. Herod is trying to impress the rich and powerful. He's trying to manipulate the powers of the day to his advantage. He, he gives the people food, but it ultimately, what does it lead to? It leads to death. It leads to injustice. John was wrongly killed. Jesus, in his banquet, provides food. He feeds the people, and it leads to life. Uh, ultimately, he is bringing life. So two very different banquets, two very different uh, kings, and I, I think we have to say, Mark is intentionally contrasting these to say, Jesus is offering something very different from what the world is offering in terms of 
power and leadership. It's also helpful to know a little bit about the historical context. If you go to the wilderness, the remote place, a solitary place, if you go back through the passage, notice how Mark uses those kinds of descriptions over and over. This is a wilderness, yet apparently there's a whole bunch of people there. What's going on? Well, the wilderness, the the rural countryside, was the home of people who were not only opposed to Roman rule, but often violently opposed to Roman rule. This is where the zealots hid out. Freedom fighters, guerrillas. They hid out in these rural areas and they planned the overthrow of Roman rule. And after seeing how bad a leader they had, you don't blame them. King Herod was their leader. You can see why they'd want to overthrow Herod and the Romans. So consider that when Jesus goes to this remote place, these are the kind of people that are running to meet him. These are people who are sympathetic to uh, using violence to overthrow the Romans. In fact, in John 6, John 6, John tells this uh, same story. In fact, all the gospel writers tell the story of feeding the 5,000, which I think is interesting because that's the only miracle other than Jesus' resurrection that's in all four Gospels, feeding the 5,000. So clearly the Gospel writers, the early church, saw this event in Jesus' life as being very, very important. But when John tells the story of feeding the 5,000, this is how he ends. After telling the exact same story, John says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So John really highlights the fact that these people would really like Jesus to be their political military leader. So much so that they're willing to make him king by force. And because Jesus knows that that's a a real danger, he he withdraws. He kind of gets away from the scene. In fact, here in Mark 6, this idea... And we may not see this on the surface, but this idea is even here. When Jesus looks out at the crowd, this is in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Again, we tend to think of that in terms of a very pastoral picture Shepherd cares for the sheep. Yes, that's true. Uh, And that idea is here. But this idea of sheep without a shepherd actually goes all the way back to Numbers 27, where Moses, talking to God, basically says, you know, you've got to appoint a leader for these people after I go, after I die, so that they will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And that reference was not simply to a pastor a spiritual leader, it was very much to a political and even military leader. And so God appoints Joshua to follow in Moses' place. So Jesus understands this is what the people are wanting, okay? They want a political and military leader. They're looking for a revolution. And that's why his action in verse 34 is so surprising. What does he do in response to the people coming to him? He begins to teach them. He begins to preach 
the gospel. You know, this is not normally how freedom fighters, guerrilla fighters respond to, to their followers. Uh, in the Middle East, even today, if you find a freedom fighter in the wilderness with a bunch of people, um, he, he usually hands out weapons and begins weapons training. Notice, Jesus' response is to begin to preach the gospel. And so Jesus is offering a very unexpected revolution. It's a completely different paradigm. But that doesn't mean he isn't responding to their fundamental question, their fundamental desire. Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus is responding to that. I'm going to do something And it's going to be about God's word. It's going to be about me feeding you. And ultimately, it's going to be about me laying down my life for you. We could spend some time, I guess, but we don't need to this morning, talking about bread, the symbolism of bread. Again, you know, for us, bread is carbohydrates. It's uh, something we're not supposed to eat. But in Jesus' day, where food was scarce, bread was, was life. Was a source of life. It's very interesting. Scripture repeatedly compares God's word to bread. And basically, we're told over and over in Scripture that we need God's word, God's truth, even more than we need physical bread. That there's something about us, there's a need in us that only God can satisfy. And so when we ask this question of, What do people need? What's the answer? The Christian, I I believe, has to say, hey, more than a, a conservative political agenda, more than a liberal political agenda, what people need is the gospel. What people need is the word of God. Because only that is going to satisfy and meet the deepest need and fix the deepest problems doesn't mean we can't engage in all these other things. We should. But we have to understand that the deepest need, the deepest problem, is this need to be reconciled to God. The deepest problem is our need to to be right with our Creator. And that only comes through the gospel. So Jesus offers a very unexpected revolution. This is not really what the people were looking for. But this is what he gives them. A very different exercise of power. Something also interesting in this passage is the miracle itself. You read the passage, clearly something miraculous happens here, right? I mean, we have five loaves and two fish. And we read there's 5,000 men that ate that day. Which could mean there were 15 or 20,000 people. Because... 5,000 men, if the families were there, maybe there's 20,000 people. We don't know for sure. But clearly, something miraculous happened, and yet the focus of the passage is really not on that. The people don't seem to be that aware that a miracle has occurred. Maybe the disciples are aware of it. And so I think it, it, it challenges and helps us think about miracles and the purpose of miracles in Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't do miracles to, like, put on a show. Hey, look at me. You know, that's how I would do it. 
<laughs> hey, look at me. Kind of cheap parlor tricks to get everybody's attention, to show my power. But that's really not what Jesus does in his miracles. So what are the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Well, consistently, his miracles are, are demonstrating, I believe, what God's intention is, what God's heart is. So when Jesus heals somebody, you could say, well, why doesn't Jesus heal everybody? Well, we believe one day he will. But his miracles in the Gospels function to say the world's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God created it. And it's not the way it's going to one day be. And so his miracles serve to kind of display the purpose of God's redemptive power. That one day he's going to do away with hunger. One day he's going to do away with disease and sickness and death. So there's this symbolic element to Jesus' miracles. And, you know, if you look back through discussions of passages like this, through church history, a lot of times people have gotten caught, hung up on the miraculous. So you have some people saying, oh, you know, this miracle didn't occur. And then you have other people arguing, yes, it did, and here's why. And to some extent, both missed the point in that the point is not so much about the power but the purpose of the power, God's larger goal. So we have a revolution. It's an unexpected revolution. This is bizarre. This is not how we would expect Jesus to respond, and yet this is what he does. He, he teaches. He, he preaches the gospel. He seems to think that the gospel has or holds in itself some kind of solution to the problem. Crazy Jesus. I don't know. A third point here, notice how this revolution of Jesus, it moves forward through inadequate people and inadequate resources. It's really bizarre. I, you know, obviously, Jesus could have, he could have performed this miracle any way he wanted to. But instead, he chose to kind of push back on the disciples and ask them what they had to give, Right? So the disciples come to Jesus. Jesus is getting late in the day. We're in the middle of nowhere. Send these people away so they can get something to eat. Because if you don't, we're going to have a, a mess. People are going to be passing out from hunger. They're going to be getting cranky. Send them away. And what does Jesus say? You feed them. Which obviously Jesus is asking them to do the impossible. There's no way the disciples can feed them. So... Jesus is wanting, I think, to make a point. He is, in fact, calling his followers to engage in the seemingly impossible. To, to recognize they're inadequate. They don't have the resources to provide for these people, these people. But maybe that is, in fact, the point. Jesus is saying, until you see what I'm calling you to do is impossible, you are unqualified to do it. And so Jesus chooses to perform this miracle by taking what they have, which is not nothing, and multiplying it. And that seems to be the way he likes to do things. That seems to be the way his kingdom goes forward in this world. His people, his followers, face impossible situations. 
that drive them to depend upon him. And he multiplies our meager resources to get things done. So take this back to my starting point, political conversation. A lot of us are discouraged about politics and the culture because we think it's an, it's an impossible situation. The problems we face are just so big. Nothing can be done. We, we look out at the world and the need to share the gospel with people and we just say, oh, it's, it's impossible. We just can't do it. And I think if we look to Jesus, Jesus is saying, you feed them. You take the gospel to them. You engage them. You, you work to bless them. And we say, we only got five loaves. And he says, I know. But still do, go, feed them. And then as we move forward in faith, he does, I think, miraculous things. But a lot of times we let the impossibility of the situation keep us from, from moving forward. But I think it holds true for us as followers of Jesus that it's really only when we know we're in, we are inadequate that we're adequate for the work that he has. So Jesus has a revolution going here, but it's an unexpected revolution. And it's really carried forward by completely unqualified people. People like us. People like us. Well, one last point this morning. What's the core of this revolutionary movement that Jesus starts? Every revolution starts with some significant event. Often, it's an act of violence, right? You know, a shot gets fired, uh, some, kind of, some kind of violent event triggers the revolution. And to a certain extent, it was, in fact, a violent event that Jesus' revolution is based on. But it's not Jesus doing the violence. It's Jesus receiving the violence at the cross. That his revolution, that's the foundation of it. That's not only to the, the... what it's built upon, what it draws its strength from, but it's what this movement looks back to to shape who we are today. And as I said when we were looking at the Lord's Supper, I think the connection between this feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord's Supper is here. Notice in verse uh, 22. No, I'm sorry, that was verse 41. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish, And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. It literally says he blessed and he broke. And we get those exact same words in Mark 14, where Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper with the disciples. And we read that he blessed and he broke. That, this, what this table symbolizes, is the foundation of this revolutionary movement. The cross. Hey, who's kidding? I, I, I recognize that guy. <laughs> the revolution that Jesus is advancing is based on his work on the cross. And that requires of us two things. Two things. One, first, I think we have to see that 
Jesus, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of this revolution, you have to understand, first of all, that Jesus is your substitute at the cross. That the biggest problem you have is not external per se, it's not your circumstances. The biggest problem in your life and my life is our alienation from God. That's a result of our sin. Our brokenness, that's a result of our sin. That's the biggest problem. And that even if we do all the right things at the surface, that problem is going to mess everything else up. And so we have to see that at the cross, Jesus died in our place. He took God's just wrath, so to speak, upon himself. He was broken for us. I realize that sounds so simple, but as Christians, friends, this is what we're saying is the answer. Let us not forget that. At the end of the day, we're saying this is the ultimate answer. Jesus died as our substitute to reconcile us to God, to deal with sin, to deal with evil, to deal with death. And that because of what he's done, he will one day set everything right. But consider this. This is important from the Gospel of Mark. Not only does Jesus die as our, as our Savior, our substitute, but Jesus' life and death also is meant to serve as an example for us. The cross provides a paradigm for how we think about life or how we should think about life. And you say, well, I don't know about that, Daniel. That seems kind of, uh, uh, it seems a stretch. Well, consider what we're going to see later in Mark chapter 10, Verse 42. Later in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says to his disciples, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice the connection. Jesus is going to refer to his death to the cross as a paradigm for how his followers are to do power. This is how you do power as a follower of Jesus. Not like the world around you does power. Power over, that's oppressive, that's manipulative, but power under, that's based on compassion and service and sacrifice. And I'll be honest, on the surface, that doesn't sound super appealing. And that's where I think we just need to be honest. But if we're going to take Jesus seriously, that's what we have to wrestle with. If we're going to apply Jesus and his teaching and his example to the, the questions that we face in our culture and our politics today, that's the kind of thing we have to wrestle with. What are we as followers of Jesus called to do? How are we to exercise power? And I suggest it should look very, very different from the world around us. It's a very different way of approaching power. Is it effective? <laughs> that's a fair question, right? Because this is, this is what happens. We discuss politics because at the end of the day, when you think about voting somewhere, it's always like the lesser of two evils, right? 
There's no perfect political candidate. I'm not saying, oh, well, we don't involve ourselves or we don't support anybody because nobody meets Jesus' standards. I mean, that's true. Nobody does. But I think we have to be very careful when we say we have to do this or that because that is the only way to get things done. We have to adopt the world's methods because only those work. So Jesus is okay for our private lives, but when it comes to the public sphere, Jesus doesn't have much to offer. I would challenge you to think about and wrestle with that. And I I don't have the answers, but I'm wrestling with it. Friends, when we look out into the world, lies bring more lies. Violence tends to bring more violence. Hatred breeds more hatred. Into that, into that context, the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking at the cross, says, no, the cycle can be broken. There is a different way to do power. And it looks like our Savior... On the cross. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me for all the times that I don't trust your way of doing things. Forgive me for all the times I don't even consider how Jesus' example and how the cross might speak to not only issues in my life, but issues around me. Lord, as Christians, we're not going to agree on a lot of political questions and challenges, and that's okay. But may we be agreed upon Jesus and that his kingdom is ultimate. And that his way of doing power is the only hope for this world. We thank you, Jesus, for bringing us the gospel, the word of God, the bread of life. Only you have what we most deeply need. We confess that to be true today. May our lives display it to be true this week. In your name we pray, amen.